Hi, and welcome to Saddle Up Cinema. This is your host, Neil Anderson. This is a podcast where we chew the fat about westerns. Once a week, we'll choose a new western. We'll talk about it. We'll dig into it. How is it made? What do we love about it? All of that good stuff. Today, we're going to chat about Canyon Passage. Now, this is a western from 1946, made by the producer Walter Wanger and directed by Hollywood legend Jacques Tigneur. The film was based on the 1945 novel of the same name by Ernest Haycox. It stars Dana Andrews, Brian Dunleavy, and Susan Hayward. So a little bit on Jacques Tigneur. Most listeners will probably be familiar with his work as a horror director for RKO in the 1940s. Uh, you know, great such as Cat People, uh, I Walked with a Zombie, etc. So he's coming from a very visual genre, the horror genre, and a very visually driven approach to that genre. And one of the things I want to talk about today is how he actually displays some of that craft in this Western milieu. First, a couple notes about the production of the film and some of the other names besides Tenure, because you know more than one person makes a movie, right? So the film was budgeted at $1.5 million, which was a pretty significant amount for a Western at that time. Written by Ernest Pascal and was made for Universal. So they started shooting it in August of 1945. They actually chose to shoot the film on location in these astoundingly beautiful areas. Shot in Technicolor, which was you know, relatively new for films at that time at that scale. And it required special lighting and camera techniques so the production was incredibly challenging due not only to the weather conditions which were inordinate and the remote location but also you know jack tenure which god bless him this is why i love the man is so detail oriented that he was not finishing days on time because he was trying to get that framing exactly right trying to capture a precise bit of lighting when they got the footage into post it was edited by Milton Carruth, who was an editor who had worked with Tenure several times on the film's Cat People, I Walk With a Zombie. So they had a working relationship that was incredibly symbiotic, and you can really see the evidence of that in some quite artful transitions and fades that are placed into the movie. The costumes were designed by Rene Hubert, and they worked with Tenure to create a sense of verisimilitude and period accuracy in the costumes. That was a little unusual for 50s westerns of that time. Hubert had previously worked on The Leopard Man, a tenure joint, and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. The score is incredibly important in this film in the way that it links the various tonal, attic, and character threads together. And this was created by Cyril Mockridge, who was a British composer who worked in Hollywood during the 40s and 50s. He's well known for his work on Western films like Red River and a personal favorite of mine, The Big Country. Uh, he composed the score for Canyon Passage using a blend of Western and classical music, incorporating themes and motifs that kind of reflected themes of romance, friendship, adventure. This score was actually you know, nominated for an Academy Award at the time, and... I think if you still crank it on, this thing is, functions as a great kind of classic Hollywood orchestral Western score. Edward Crunkier shot the film. 
veteran cinematographer who would go on to make 140 films in his career. Uh, he was picked primarily for his ability to work with the Technicolor technology, but he creates gorgeous images with the use of these Northwestern landscapes in the film. There's a wonderful use of light and shadow in certain scenes. And I think that might be a little bit the influence of Turnier if you watch some of his other movies like Cat People and his play with chiaroscuro lighting. The final product is undeniable, though, visually. Canyon Passage was released on August 20, 1946. It received mixed reviews from the critics. Some praised the cinematography and performances, while others besides the slow pacing, lack of action. The film was a moderate success at the box office, grossing $3.3 million in the U.S. and Canada, and it was nominated for Best Score and Best Cinematography, but it won neither of them. In the past few years, though, from my sense of it, is that this film has gained a lot of steam in the cinephile community. It has a reputation as being a kind of special Western, a jewel in the rough, and that was 100% my impression of it. Diving into the movie a little bit, we open on this kind of wonderfully guttural rain scene in Oregon, setting the template for the elements being something that these characters have to struggle against, along with, uh, you know, everything else in the movie. And <laughs> I, I just immediately thought it hasn't stopped raining in Oregon in 200 years, apparently. So, winning scene uses and you know again we're, we're our main character here is dana andrews and they are this incredibly ambitious character a character that is very driven that is single-minded that kind of can't be taken off of their path i've been most familiar with dana andrews as a film noir actor laura maybe being the most famous example he often plays the detective character or the cop character someone who's doggedly pursuing uh, a, a femme fatale or some mystery and it was a little jarring to see him in a period piece but that kind of determinism is really perfect character that he's playing in this movie and the conviction plays it, it plays across genre and so I was really won over by his performance even if it was a little strange at first it's almost like you know the way that they talk today about it just feels like timothy chalamet has seen a cell phone so when you put him in a period piece it feels a little bit odd uh but i like i said i get over that quickly opens with him talking to a shopkeeper character that he is in business with or that provide that he provides goods to and he talks about the idea of choosing your own gods and the idea that, you know, man can kind of choose his idols, choose his, his fate, introduces this kind of idea of free will that's going to play out. The rustic tones visually, even in these early scenes when we're inside the city of Portland, are incredibly evocative. They give us these kind of warm maroons, they give us these different shades of brown, and we feel that we are in this time period, in this space gorgeous dolly shot show the kind of elegance of new clothes that main actress is you know introduced in and that's just this this flourish from uh tenure that you wouldn't necessarily get from a director who's less adept and this is of course the great susan hayward who's going to play a big role in the rest of the movie uh there's you know, wonderful background scenes. One of the best uh, 
you know, I think Roger Avery said this once in a podcast. One of the best marks of a good director is how their extras are directed. And this film, in the background of the Portland scenes, you're seeing horses stuck in the mud. You're seeing, you know, hustling and teeming streets. So Dana Andrews steps out of the shopkeeper's office to the street and into a saloon where he's given a new job by a guy that could only have been the model for the Monopoly man. There's another bit of conversation in the bar that introduces a theme of the film, which is this kind of difference between city life and rural life and the, you know, the possibilities on the frontier versus the possibilities in a metropolitan area. Something that's hard to conceptualize for us now where we have access to the internet anytime, anywhere, but you know, you were really cut off from culture completely in a way that is almost foreign, I think, to us, unless we kind of step back to think about it. In the bar, there's a conversation about a suspension bridge built, being built in New York when we've just seen uh, a cowboy stumble on a wooden plank that acts as a makeshift bridge in Portland. Another fascinating bit of conversational dialogue introduces this connection between the you know, windows, being able to afford windows, being able to have windows, being able to see out as a sign of civilization. So this motif of windows gives an extra layer of meaning to next scene where Logan is hacked in the night and his window is shattered. So we see you know, the, the kind of seeds of civilization sprouting and then also how quickly the, that line between barbarism and civilization can be crossed again. The next day, Logan and Lucy head out and they're on the trail. They're heading over to Jacksonville. They're going to bring that shipment of goods for the Monopoly man. And this is where we get a beautiful series of lyrical fades. We get gorgeous, uh, you know, silhouettes against the sky and they're indelible images, but they also are reinforcing again, that idea of man and the idea, you know, trying to create a civilization, trying to have this kind of structure built by and around people versus these kind of primal forces that are, you know, both deep within the characters' hearts and also, you know, surrounding them in this kind of sublime, in the sense of, but also terrifying terrain. The fades are incredibly lyrical here. We get these composite images that are created by the choice of where to fade. And, you know, they're kind of great sequences in and of themselves. It's also revealed that a character named Honey Bragg is the assailant from the night before. And the reason that this guy made the attack is Logan had witnessed him probably killing two miners and he doesn't want this getting out. So he, you know, he's holding a grudge against Ben or, you know, he's got a reason to want to get this guy out of the picture. So at this point, they stop by a homestead and we get introduced to kind of the quintessential homestead family, a patriarch. They're in a log cabin next to a river. The rivers become important later on in the lyrics and also in the symbolism. And this family is also, you know, the home of this patriarch's daughter, who is Logan's friend, Caroline. So at, at this point, I had to notice that the gowns and the costuming in general is just exquisite in the film. The use of color, the designs, they are, you know, 
pleasing to modern eyes and also uh you know feel kind of uh period in a way it's not it doesn't feel revisionist we're not in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette there are hints of kind of Native American attacks in the area and that's going to become important later but the crew kind of rides into Jacksonville and this is where we get introduced to a character played by the musician Hoagie Carmichael He's singing at the top of his lungs, rolling through town on a donkey, playing a mandolin, which has just got to be one of the great character intros in cinema history for sure. And, you know, one of the lines that he sings is, by the river, we'll find the trail of dreams. We get into the town and we're introduced to Jacksonville. And again, it's just as tactile as the rendering of Portland, specifically the production design. Every scene is filled with you know, small tools with uh, hides on the walls, color blocks that are creating these dynamic compositional features while also feeling like they are true to the world. And, you know, Logan rolls in and he has a kind of, uh, you know, dialogue with this old British guy. And, you know, the old British guy who works at the shop that he delivers the goods to kind of tells him, plan for the fact that things are going to go bad because nobody's luck ever runs forever there's always going to be a trough to the wave you know logan essentially like any character that's worth his salt completely ignores that at first in jacksonville we're also introduced to george who has a relationship with susan hayward's character lucy and he's also like you know one of the best friends of logan you know an old friend one of the most interesting characters in the movie. He's a gambler, and he's essentially, again, a, a, uh, in this conflict between civilization and depravity, he is a character that's completely driven by his animal impulses. He cannot resist his temptations, and his manifestation of that is gambling. So the Logan character doesn't know that George, who's you know a banker of, in a sort, he holds the miner's gold dust, he has actually been, you know, taking gold off the top to pay his gambling debts. George is getting further and further into debt, so, you know, the Logan character tries to convince him to stop gambling to no avail. And, you know, we see that Logan is a stark contrast to him. Again, he's addicted to something else's work. He's like a straight arrow, no time for anything else. And we get this beautiful fade at this point from a kind of wood of a door closing to the wood of a cabin raising. And we're seeing a, you know, a new homestead be cemented on the frontier. This is a really great sequence in the film. It reminds me a lot of the barn raising sequence in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, but also the sequence from Witness, where we get to see the Amish kind of you know raising a barn in real time. And there's a, like a kind of poetry to the scene. It really captures the community well. And my favorite part of it, though, is the conflict that's introduced at the end where this whole kind of jubilant atmosphere is uh you know just the whole the wind is taken out of it by this native group that comes up and they're not stereotypically depicted at all they speak in their own language and only one white character understands them and he translates for the rest of the group and specifically what this group of natives is concerned about is the raising of the cabin they're like you know it's fine that you're here we can coexist but when you raise the cabin up and you this is a homestead you're saying that this is your property you're cutting it off from the rest of the wilderness 
and they kind of understand that that's the root of you know what's going to change that you know space completely so it's a very nuanced take on the native americans view of what's happening in a given situation especially for a 40s western that's you know either revisionism of the 60s and 70s the native americans are temporarily assuaged by a gift exchange but you can sense that there's a kind of tension brewing the scene of the cabin raising ends with this really interesting sequence where caroline logan's kind of prospective wife him look into the window of the you know newly minted cabin that this other young couple are going to inhabit and they're kind of you know window shopping for their own life is this kind of domesticity something that we want and caroline very much wants to settle in a place like this and seems very family oriented the logan character you know wants something more he's he's uh, you know so addicted to his work that it feels like it's not even a means to an end the end being like a kind of domestic ideal like this it's just you know the work is an end in itself for him it seems the scene sequencing here is really interesting because we get this beautiful gesture of a cabin raising communally happening with the people in the town and the surrounding area but then we also get you know a sense of the town and some of the following scenes as this place that's kind of waiting for the light entertainment which for them is everything as innocuous and beautiful as music uh, to gambling to even finding this kind of sadistic pleasure in fights and there's a fight brewing between this character honey Bragg and logan and at this point builds to a kind of sadistic bloodletting inside the saloon where everyone in the town is looking on and it's incredibly violent the way it's depicted. You know, chairs are thrown over people's heads. Uh, Logan and Bragg are just kind of tearing each other up. But I'd say even more than the violence of the actual scene, what sticks with you is the kind of sadism of the town. It reminds me of scenes from, uh, you know, 40s movies where they cut to the kind of sadistic audiences if you're watching like a Robert Ryan boxing movie. And so even Lucy, when we cut to her, seems to be enjoying this fight. Logan doesn't want to fight, but of course, just like anything in his life, if he commits to it, he commits to it 100%. And I, I like the way that that you know, character trait kind of is through here. There's a close-up of Bragg's bloody head that just really sticks with you as uh, kind of underlining the viscerality of the scene. The only thing Logan holds back doing is actually killing Bragg. So at this point, the character of George and their gambling addiction comes to the fore. You know, Logan is a character that kind of walks through life as if they don't have money, but they are relatively financially secure in the movie. Whereas George walks through the movie as if he's, you know, this kind of debonair, uh, you know, bourgeois character when he really he is on the brink of poverty, and the musician character who is starting to take this role as a holy fool. You're getting the sense that they see things that other characters don't. They're going the opposite way of the town. When the town goes right, they go left. And he looks through the window and he sees the uh, George character sneaking some of the gold off of the top. So it's kind of confirmed that he's been skimming this stuff all along. So one of the miners shows up and surprises 
George and he's like, Hey, you've got my money. Where is it? I want my gold. And George is like, yeah, dude, no problem. Uh, one sec. And the miner is drunk. So George sees this miner guy, you know, walking down to the creek and, and tenure makes the choice not to show the violence, but it's pretty clear that George has killed this guy. It's a tragic buildup from this character when he's introduced, you know, in the beginning of the movie. It's it's very believable and kind of psychologically acute in the way it shows his you know gradual succumbing and not being able to say no even when he should, you know, to this kind of addiction that he has. And, and you know, he gets slowly and slowly alive as the movie goes along to we can see why at this point he would just grab a shovel and start flailing as it were at anybody that's around uh so really we can see you know this is a character that's just in the throes of an addiction it uh, you know reminds me of the the, this could could be the requiem for a dream of the 1950s (laughs) as all this is happening logan visits his girlfriend out on the homestead of her father and they have a beautiful walk against a sunset that's very evocative of the, you know, Francis Ford Coppola outsiders film when the kids are in that kind of country refuge. I think it's an old church or old library or something, old schoolhouse. Uh, and so it's just this gorgeous scene cinematically, but I love the symbolism of what Turnier is doing here because he has the characters talking about the future and how they're going to move in together and they have this, you know, whole life ahead of them. But it's a sunset shot. It's not sunrise. We're not going to see you know things expanding. This might actually be the end of something, even if it looks like the beginning. And just to shout out the cinematography, a lot of great forest shots that really remind me of The Last of the Mohicans and the work there that was done to evoke you know, painters from the Hudson River School. George knows that he needs to get out of town quick, so... He proposes to Lucy and she finally accepts. He's like, all right, you know, go with Logan, go to San Francisco, pick out a wedding dress. And on the way, they're ambushed by Bragg. So their horses are shot dead. They get away, but they get back to town. And George is now on trial for killing this miner. At this point, we start to see how the kind of single-minded exterior of Logan is actually a little more complicated. For one, he does have a lot of feelings for the Susan Hayward character, and they have a kind of scene that's really, you know, pretty erotic in the woods, away from society. It's just a kiss, but you could feel that it's revealing all of these uh, feelings that he has underneath, that the movie's done a good job in hiding from you. And the performance by Andrews is also, you know, masking that in a really believable way. We back to the town and witness one of the things that I love about westerns, which is that you're seeing the philosophy of ethics and legality playing out in real time. In other words, you know, there's not a legal system that exists in a lot of these territories, so people are kind of banding together to form an idea of community justice, and often that plays out in the form of a lot of drunkards sitting in a saloon putting someone on trial. So and this is the case here. The whole community is lined up in the saloon. There's even a, a wonderful shot of Chinese immigrants, and they're just part of the the court. You know, it's it's not commented on. I really like that little bit of mezzo en scène. Now I'm going to comment on it and make a thing of it. But it uh, just felt like really seeing the entire community represented here. 
And it's with this trial of George that we see the other crack in Logan's facade forming. He has this dictum that, you know, we choose our own gods. You know, we can use reason, right, rather than just being driven by our sentiments. And yet he seems to know on some level that George character has probably done this crime, but he just feels for the guy and he's going to try and let him get away. And that's what ultimately he does. You know, he kind of lets this character out the back door uh, to try and let him escape, even though he knows that logically and ethically it's probably the wrong thing to do. So we get, by the end of the movie, a kind of complete reversal and humbling of this character in terms of our ability to choose our own gods. The, there's something more complex than that, than this kind of, you know, uh, simple determinism. So Logan tries to save his friend. There's an interesting scene where they kind of question the validity of eyewitness testimony, but ultimately he's not able to save his friend. It's a kind of double dagger ending because... Logan betrays what he knows is right, and at the end of the day, his buddy still doesn't even get away with it. So while this trial has been happening, we see a really fascinating scene, a terrible scene, but in the context of the movie, really well done, which is we see the Bragg character kind of out roaming the wilderness, and it's heavily implied that they sexually assault a young Native woman. And I mention this because, you know, one, it's not depicted graphically in any way. It's just implied. But it gives the Native characters, when they come in and perform what they're going to do next, which is, you know, kind of pillaging through this entire town and raising it to the ground. These settlements, this log cabin that we've seen raised earlier in the movie, you know, all of it is kind of like brought to the ground in this violent, thartic cleansing by fire. But there's a motivation for it. You understand why these characters, the Natives have you know this this tenuous peace between them and the settlers that we've seen being brokered throughout the movie why it's suddenly broken uh and you empathize with it to a large degree as an audience member and that's just not the position that you're normally put in when the natives attack in a western it's they're, they're usually almost a force that's like a tornado they just you know roll in without any logic no in this movie there's clear concerns about land ownership and then there's a kind of reaction to uh, you know a, a transgression that occurs that motivates the last act of the movie, and it kind of feels biblical in the sense that you know there's so much gambling and sin and now murder in this town that it, it's almost like uh, you know it's it's a it's Sodom and Gomorrah it needs to be raised to the ground. So of course, not only do we get the nice you know bookend of you choose your own gods being questioned by Logan by the end of the movie. Of course, the British characters, uh, you know, uh, advice that your luck is going to run out has now ultimately proved to be true as well. And the violence at the end of this film is truly shocking. The way that this community, which you've gotten a sense of, is dismantled in front of your eyes uh, is convincingly done. The edits are quick. And the score is, you know, really kind of ramping up. I say the edits are quick contextually in terms of the rest of the movie. They're quicker than everything else. And so it's you're getting a sense of the action, but everything is kind of building to this uh, ultimate. In fact, some of the violence reminded me of the intensity of something like Ulzana's Raid. And 
it's really where you can kind of see, oh yeah, Shocker Jr. was a horror director, and when he wants to horrify you, yes, you know, he can do it with shadows and sound, but he also can, you know, show you images that are going to make you feel what you're watching. And with a kind of, you know, post-near-death experience clarity after all of this, Logan's girlfriend, you know, breaks off the engagement and he kind of realizes that he needs to be with the Susan Hayward character. So the sun is finally set on that relationship. And now for rankings. So every week we do a ranking section where we give each movie a rating out of five stars. And we also will rank each movie against the last one. So we'll be creating our kind of own personal ranking of the canon of Westerns that we're reviewing on this show. This is the first episode, so it won't be hard for Canyon Passage to make number one. Uh, in terms of the star rating, I was just really taken by this movie, honestly. The colors are incredibly gorgeous when you think about it in, you know, after images in your head. You just want to dive back into that world. The dialogue is wonderful. There's a lot of kind of callbacks within it. You know, I'll marry you when the leaves change. Or are we talking about evergreens? Or are we talking about the ones that fall in the autumn? Uh, you know, things like that. It's just, you know, a lot of snappy, sometimes funny, sometimes just acerbic and right on point dialogue. And the way that it flows from one kind of image to the next, you know, with uh, Tenure and his editor, it's just a very fluid movie watch. They also do a great job of juggling the relationships. Don't have everything seen through the Logan character. We get a lot of these scenes with George, with the Susan Hayward character. Build out a sense of the way that these people relate to each other in a way that's really convincing while still keeping the movie at around 90 minutes. That is kind of extraordinary. And I have multiple memorable characters that I can take away from this movie amount of time which is just unusual i also love the touch of having this kind of musical uh, chorus through the character by hoagie carmichael this kind of singing fool it adds a unique flavor to the movie and it's you know it's kind of bizarre to have him riding on a donkey along past uh, our our lovers at the end of the movie while they are riding away on horseback but you know there's something that's kind of fitting about it even though the movie does a great job of balancing most of these character threads, I have to say that the one weak point is it feels like there's a scene missing between Logan and the Susan Hayward character. You know, we feel their relationship. In other words, I think at the end it makes sense thematically that they belong together more than Logan and Caroline, his original girlfriend. But it just doesn't play emotionally, I think, as resonantly as it maybe should. But overall, that's a minor quibble, and it's not like there's a huge weight placed on their relationship working at the end of the movie. So, you know, it feels like a pretty conclusive ending either way. This isn't the darkest Western that I've seen, although I will say that George character's arc is pretty psychologically dark and modern for, for its time and the way that it's depicted, but you love a kind of sweeping story where you feel like you've really gotten to see time pass and things develop even though it's done in a way that's incredibly well paced uh, you know i'd say throw this thing on 
the star rating, I'm going to go with a four and a half out of five stars. I can't wait to see other big budget movies that Tenure made because his fantasy movie, The Flame and the Arrow, or, you know, medieval movie, is also really worth a watch. And now for the recommendation section, where we pair all of our movies with something from beyond the year 2000. For today's recommendation, I'm going to have to go with The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The Coen Brothers, kind of a predictable choice. I'm not always going to pair a Western with a Western, but between all those storylines, you kind of get a sense of a Western community or communities in the way that you do in this movie. Plus, it's just The Coen Brothers. It's a great movie. Everyone should go rewatch it at any time. But I think these would pair well together because there's enough different tones that you wouldn't be kind of stuck in a monotonous night. Well, thank you all for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them to me at my Twitter, at Saddle Up Cinema. And find me on Letterboxd, Neil Anderson. You'll see an orange profile pic. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your friends if you liked it. Feel free to check in next week when we talk about a Lucio G Western. Until then, don't let the grass grow under your boots. Yeah.